Let's ask God for his help as we come to his word. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp for our feet and a light on our path. In your spirit, please work through me and your word tonight to achieve the purposes for which you have sent it. Amen. Life is full of choices. What will I have for breakfast? Why, how will I do my hair today? When will I do my homework? What will I wear today? Or what should I do with my spare time? What am I going to cook for dinner? Or how am I going to order my tasks at work? How do you make up your mind? How do you decide what to do? We usually weigh up the options. We think about them and often there's lots of good choices, but sometimes we just sit on the fence. We can't make up our mind and haven't really committed the time or effort to come to a well thought out conclusion. Sometimes the things that actually deserve our attention just get pushed back. We say, I'll get to it another day. And one of the questions I think many Australians do that and keep avoiding and rarely think about is God. Is he important in my life? Should I believe in him? Maybe I'll deal with it when I'm older. Then I can think about it and what happens when I die. It's times um, like this that we're complacent with some of the important things and so often we sit on the fence. What about me? I believe in God, so I'm all sorted. But what about my faithfulness to God? I, myself, find it easy to be torn between the things of this world and the things that draw me um, closer to God, so I sit on the fence. Sometimes I want things my way, but sometimes I also want things God's way. And it is that question that I want you to ask yourself tonight. How long will I sit on the fence? How long will I sit on the fence? I hope to flesh this question out as we go through 1 Kings chapter 18 tonight in three sections. Firstly, faith amidst judgment. Secondly, how long will Israel sit on the fence? And thirdly, a godly example. Please keep your Bibles open as we go through the passage and follow along with me. Point one, faith amidst judgment. Last week, in chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah went to Ahab and told him that there wasn't going to be any more rain. Not even dew would fall on the land except by the word of Elijah. Now, then God tells, Ahab to go, uh, tells Elijah to go out of Ahab's presence. And getting out of there is probably the safest thing to do when you've just promised the king that there's going to be a drought and that that drought isn't going to end until you say the word. Now, in chapter 18, verse 1, three years later, God tells Elijah to see Ahab, and when he does, God will send rain. That sounds risky, but simple. Elijah is obedient, goes to see Ahab, and then God will send rain. To help us understand what is going on for the northern kingdom of Israel at this time, 
We start at verse 2. It says, Now the famine was severe in Samaria. The drought was so severe that Ahab the king and Obadiah, his trusted palace administrator, had to go out and look for grass and water. You know that there is a severe water shortage when the king himself and his right-hand man have to go out and look for it. They divide the land and go in opposite directions. A small side note, um, there's a few different Obadiahs in the Bible and it's quite likely that this is not the minor prophet Obadiah who appears a few centuries later. On his journey, Obadiah doesn't find water, water, but runs into the person who will provide water, Elijah. Elijah says, go tell Ahab I'm here. But Obadiah fears for his life, verse 9, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? In verse 10, he begins to recount the hunt that has been on for Elijah and how Ahab has had every kingdom and nation searched and taken oaths that he was not there. Obadiah knows the lengths Ahab has gone to to try and find Elijah and now he expects him to just say, here he is. But on top of that, Obadiah fears Elijah will be swept away by the Spirit of the Lord in verse 12, and he'll be left with the consequences. I want to make a brief point. Obadiah seems like the opposite of Elijah. Verse 3 says he still greatly fears the Lord, but where is that fear? Obadiah is the one working for Ahab. He isn't bold enough to confront Ahab to his face because he knows well the kind of evil person he is. But this is where we can see where his allegiance is. Obadiah's faith in the Lord dictates his actions. He submits to the Lord, but uh, he submits to the king, but he knows ultimately that his true king is the Lord God. Therefore, in verse 4, while Jezebel, Ahab's wife, is going about killing the prophets, his faith leads him to hide the prophets of the Lord in caves and to feed them and give them water. He doesn't practice a bold public ministry like Elijah, but in quietness and shrewdness, behind the scenes, he acts to save the prophets. And that is at his own risk. Obadiah doesn't sit on the fence asking the question, should I save my life or should I save the life of the prophets? He acts decisively on his complete trust and reliance on God. So don't go on thinking that if you're a true Christian, you'll become a missionary or a pastor. Sometimes remaining faithful to God in your, in your life will not mean giving up your job, but thoughtfully using the means God has given you in your circumstances. In the everyday decisions, God seeks our trust and faithfulness. Not everyone needs to be a big public hero of faith. Back to the story. Elijah listens to Obadiah and, um, and listen, listens to Obadiah and promises him that he won't disappear but will show himself to Ahab that same day. So when, 
When Ahab sees Elijah's face, what does he say? Ah, finally, you've come to give us some rain. No, he doesn't say that. In verse 17, he says, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? It's like he's saying, I've searched everywhere for you, and now when the land is perishing from this drought, you decide to show your face. You've caused this. Elijah isn't shy. He corrects Ahab and tells him what the real problem is and who's caused it. He says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now we start to see a little bit of light getting shed on the reason behind the drought. Israel has been unfaithful to the commandments of the Lord and they haven't been helped by their nation's leadership either. There's been a long line of unfaithful kings for the ten tribes of the northern kingdom and Ahab, he's no exception. He's a supporter of idol worship, is married to Jezebel who's bent on worshipping everything but the true and living God. She has imported Baal, the god of rain and storms, and Baal's wife, Asherah, who also has 400 prophets of her own. Things are in bad shape for Israel, and they're receiving the fruit of their works through divine judgment. But they have been warned. Besides having many prophets like Elijah calling Israel back to faithfulness, before that, in Deuteronomy 11:16, Moses says, Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will yield no produce, and you will soon perish from the good land that the Lord is giving you. So there's a big problem, and Elijah has come to straighten things out. In verse 19 he says, to Ahab, let's gather all Israel and 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah and meet on Mount Carmel. So they did. Which brings us to point two. How long will Israel sit on the fence? Verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Elijah probes at the problem. They're sitting on the fence. They want a bit of both. They want some Baal worship, but also a dabble of God and can't make up their minds. It says they limp between two options. They aren't walking upright but stumbling. And they did, they did not answer, not even a word. No conviction, no response. That all sounds fair enough, but hang on. Sounds a bit like us too, doesn't it? As I said earlier, we often sit on the fence with our commitments. 
We want the things of this world that look so appealing but often forget to deal with our commitment or lack of commitment to God. We struggle to give up the pleasures and the sins that draw us away from God. For Israel, Elijah throws it down. He sets the challenge. He starts the contest. Elijah says, I'm the only prophet of the Lord left, but Baal has 450. Let's take two bulls, prepare them on two altars, and put no fire to them. And you'll call upon your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers with fire, he is God. This time, Elijah doesn't get silence in response. They say, it is well spoken. Or in the NIV, what you say is good. So the fight is on. Will the true and living God please stand up? Now, the phrase, would the real Slim Shady please stand up, probably sounds familiar, but its origin is actually in the 1950s TV show, To Tell the Truth. Three contestants would all pretend to be the same person, let's say John Smith, and one of them would actually be John Smith, while the other's fakes. A panel would ask them questions and try to determine which of them was the real John Smith. The audience would get to vote, the panel would get to vote, and then the big reveal was when the host would say these words, will the real John Smith please stand up? And all was set straight. That is the kind of challenge Elijah has set. Let's find out who is the real God, and then there will be no questions about it, no sitting on the fence, no erring between two gods, one God, true and living. Instead of distancing yourself from this contest, bring yourself into it. This challenge is important for you too, for all of us, not just for Christians. Now, you may already know what happens next in the account of these events that day. So, I thought, as we go through them, I'll make a scoreboard to keep track of how things are looking as the opponents weigh up against each other. I will also, um, it will also help us to see afresh why we can't ignore or divide our conviction and devotion between God and the world. Contestant number one, Baal. We've already started the scoreboard, 450 prophets versus one. And dry wood for Baal. Verse 20 says... They're on Mount Carmel, a mountain that is probably a high place used for idol worship, so home ground advantage for Baal. Verse 25, Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first. You are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So Baal's team gets to go first and have first pick from the bulls. All is going well. They take the bull and prepare it. In verse 26, the prophets call upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. Hang on. 
Half a day just went past, and they're still calling on Baal to light the sacrifice. But, it says, there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Notice here the same word, limp. Maybe it's pointing out that bar worship doesn't help. It makes you stumble. Now it is midday, and Elijah mocks them. There isn't many appropriate times to mock people, but this is the circumstance. Elijah has picked his time well, and he helps Israel to understand the futility that is going on in front of them. Elijah mocks, suggesting, cry aloud, for he is a god. In other words, well, surely he'll respond if he's a real god, right? Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. Elijah taunts them, suggesting things that humans do. We think about things. We visit the loo. We travel, we rest. Baal doesn't sound very reliable. Well, this egged them on. Verse 28 says, They cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And at midday past, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. Let's look at the scoreboard. What type of prayer or petition was made by Baal? A long, loud and desperate one. Oh, made for Baal, sorry. Um, what about their religious zeal? Well, I think they get 11 out of 10 because they are committed right through to the end and it was an amazing spectacle. A whole crowd of people was gathered to watch the showdown and to this point they've not been disappointed. What a performance they've just witnessed, seeing complete commitment right through to the end. May I point out that it seems like a bit more than commitment. Things are getting a bit crazy. Verse 29 says that they raved on, or in the NIV, they frantically prophesied. It's turned into a full-on frenzy around the altar. But what does the passage say happens? But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. After all that energy, a full day of calling out, silence comes, and it's now around six o'clock. It's time for contestant number two, God's turn. Following in verse 30, Elijah says to all the people, come near. It's like he's saying, come and watch very closely so you can see what happens and that I'm not cheating. So far, it looks like the odds are stacked very heavily against God. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came to, saying, Israel shall be your name. And, he, and with the stones he built the altar in the name of the Lord. This is the time when the 12 tribes of Israel are divided, but Elijah still reconstructs the altar in a way that's pleasing to God, representing the united 12 tribes and in the name of the Lord. 
and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood on the in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering, and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar, and filled the trench also with water. It's needless to say that this sacrifice is in no state to suddenly become a light, even if lightning hit it. This further emphasised to the people of Israel and the other prophets that are watching closely that this is no magic trick that Elijah is trying to pull off. It's sopping wet. Verse 36 says, And at the time of the offering of oblation, that is, the proper time for the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Let's come back to a brief look at the scoreboard again and tally things up. Altar preparation, it's built in the name of the Lord, but it's soaking wet. Location, where the altar had been thrown down and broken. He gets second pick of the bull. It's the God of the universe, though. And he prays a short prayer. It was quiet. It was confident and God-centred. As for religious zeal, Elijah was humble, preparing the altar and offering and calling on God in a very simple way, without making all the desperate shouting. If it wasn't for the lack of fire, at this point, Baal's victory would appear for sure certain. Elijah knows that he doesn't need to loudly seek God's attention or wake him up. He intentionally prays for two things. That Israel would know that God is alive, and secondly, for God to turn their hearts back, granting faith and repentance. This is my prayer for everyone, and I hope that it's yours too, that we would know God is real and active, and that our hearts would be turned to him in faith and repentance. It's at this point we've seen all the preparation, the contest is on, and we're about to find out. We can say, will the real God please stand up? And look at verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was, around, that was in the trench. I think we have our definitive winner of the contest. No doubt about it. It seems that God didn't just stand up. He's flipped the table. And Elijah says, well, look, you've got God. He is the true and living God. He has proved himself not just to Israel, but he's proved himself to us as well. 
going from verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Wow, that's, that's a lot of things going on, so let's unpack some of it. From a quick observation, it seems like the bull on the altar is just part of the contest to see whose God will answer with fire. But as noted earlier in verse 29 and 36, it says it's the time of the evening sacrifice. And the text calls it a burnt offering in verse 38. This isn't any old time that Elijah happens to be preparing the bull. And the fact that the bull that the fact that it is a bull indicates it's a sin offering. So this is an offering that Elijah is making on behalf of the people of Israel for their sin. And when the fire of the Lord comes down and consumes it, God is receiving it as acceptable. God is a zealous and a jealous God who seeks Israel's heart as he, as he answers the second part of Elijah's prayer to turn their hearts back. And that's exactly how the people respond. They fall on the ground prostrate. This is true worship, true repentance, as they confess to the Lord that he is God. This contest is important for us, but we don't have to sacrifice. The sacrifice that Elijah made wasn't for us. Elijah presented a sacrifice of atone, to atone for Israel's sins, but it only temporarily did the job. They had to continue to sacrifice again and again. But we have Jesus, God's own son who willingly died for our sins, his sacrifice is a once-for-all-time-for-all-people sacrifice. And just like Elijah's sacrifice, God accepts the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. So when we turn in faith and repentance, we have right relationship with God through Jesus. Christ is far better than what we see in the Old Testament. We get a new heart, better promises, and the perfect work of Jesus on the cross. And what about Elijah's command to seize the prophets and then slaughter them? Doesn't that sound like a bit of overreaction? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 13. It says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign that he tells you comes to pass, and he says, Let's go after other gods and you have not known them, and let us serve them. And verse 5, But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Therefore, Elijah's command is nothing short of dealing with the apostasy the way it really should have been dealt with many years earlier. Coming back to 1 Kings 18, We've had the Carmel contest. God has defeated Baal, but it still hasn't rained. Well, 
It may have rained fire, but it hasn't rained water. Which brings us to point three, a godly priority. I'll continue reading from verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look towards the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And it was at the seventh time that he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So what's going on here? Didn't God promise that he was going to send rain in verse 1? Wouldn't Ahab be giving Elijah the eyes like, you've proved your point, now where's my rain? Or he's, But he does what he says, goes up to eat and drink. Then we find Elijah back on Mount Carmel, bending over with his face to the ground, with his knees, um, with his face to the ground between his knees, praying. But what's he praying for? Well, it's rain, of course. But why? Why does he need to pray for rain if God has promised it would come? When he prayed earlier that day for fire, it came immediately. But here, Elijah prays and tells his servant to go look toward the sea, and he reports that there is nothing. Elijah's priority is for God's will to be done as he's promised. So he keeps praying and sends his servant out seven times in total. It's only on the seventh time the servant reports a tiny cloud rising from the sea. He prayed with patience and perseverance. Even when God promises something to us, it is godly and right to pray that those promises will be done. Just as Neil said a few weeks ago when we looked at the Lord's Prayer, praying, your kingdom come, your will be done, is asking God to do the things that he's already promised to do. We don't know when our prayers will be answered, but We must keep on praying, knowing that God hears and knows the perfect timing to answer. So, when we pray, we don't have to shout or rouse God so that he's not asleep anymore and listens. Psalm 121 says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will not will neither slumber nor sleep. So, how can we put tonight's passage into action? We live in the 21st century. What's the application for us? 
We don't worship idols, we don't offer sacrifices, and we don't slaughter false prophets. No, we we don't do these exact things, but we do have our own idols in this modern age. They just look a little bit different. Try to think of something that you might have made an idol of that divides your loyalty to God. Are you holding back from God doing something else? Could it be social media, sport, entertainment, fitness? What do you consider when you make everyday decisions? Do you think about your contentment, happiness, success? Like in the 1950s TV show, To Tell the Truth, don't be fooled by the fake things of the world that are so tempting to commit our time and devotion to. The real God has stood up and revealed himself to us. So why stumble along with the idols of idolatry or teeter on the fence, giving God only part of our commitment? But what about the slaughter? Are we to harm false prophets and heretics? No, we wait for Christ's return, the final judgment, where all will be settled. Today is a day of opportunity. Every day God waits, he's having mercy on everyone. So what's hindering you from turning to God or growing in your relationship with him? It isn't a communication problem, that's for sure. He always hears us when we pray and when through talking to him and we can always hear him as we look to his word where he speaks to us. Hebrews 12 says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Don't go another day wondering... What will happen when I die? Don't push aside questions like, who is God? What's my purpose? Don't ignore sin because it feels deceptively fulfilling, putting it off to deal with another day. Don't say, I'm too tired to pray, or I don't have time to read the Bible. In the words of tonight's passage, don't go on limping around sitting on the fence. Get off the fence. As we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper tonight, if you're a Christian, celebrate the the victory of Jesus' blood, which has been won for you. Remember with reverence and thankfulness that the sacrifice of Jesus' own life was for you. And if you're not yet a Christian, consider how Jesus' sacrifice on the cross can change your life forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the true and living God of all. You are active through all time and every place. Please help us not to sit on the fence, but to cast everything that hinders us and um, prevents our obedience to walk with you. Yours is the only side of the fence where true life can be found. We ask that your promise of bringing many to faith and repentance would be accomplished in Jesus' name. Amen.